From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic's been a struggle for Danette Garlis, owner of a Greek restaurant in Fort Morgan. Trying to get back to where we were when you've lost, what, thirty dollars to $50,000, it's not an easy task. Not out here in the rural area. I'm not just going to close my doors and walk away unless I'm absolutely positively forced to. Then the sound of the wind more than 100 million miles away. Plus, the Denver band south of France on not trying too hard when writing songs. When you kind of get out of your own way, get out of your own head, and stop really thinking like, oh, is this going to be cool? Or what are people going to think of this? I feel like that's, you know, the best thing you can do. give to CPR because classical music is what keeps me sane these days. Especially during the pandemic and our elections. I felt it was important to pitch in my part. My day is not complete without CPR. And it's my pleasure to be able to give back. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of CPR's community of support. Your gifts strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Almost a year now into the pandemic, and we're checking back in with Coloradans we've met along the way. Today, Danette Garlis, who owns a Greek restaurant in Fort Morgan. We met her back in November. She told us the lamb chops were top-notch and explained the name of her family business, Elaine's Place. The restaurant was named after our mother. She passed away early with cancer. She always wanted to own a restaurant, so we gave it to her. Well, COVID had slowed Garlis's business to a trickle, and she told me at the time she was praying for direction. Yeah, every day I talk to the Lord and say, let's see what we can do. Let's, you know, put me where you're supposed to put me. Just don't wait too long. (laughs) Now, three months later, CPR's Ali Budner has this update. I'm tired, but, you know, um, I'm still here. It's not surprising Danette Garlis is tired. She spends most of her days in the kitchen with little relief. From the time we open, time I close, <laughs> five days a week. And yet she'd like to be busier. There's some days, you know, if it's cold outside, we don't have nothing. Her restaurant's open, but the place is empty, silent. So as we're talking, Garlis makes herself a Greek salad for lunch. That's your fresh tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and onions tossed in a Greek dressing with feta cheese. I love it. Before COVID, she says people would drive in from as far away as Golden and Estes Park for that salad. That meant she wouldn't have had time to eat it herself most days. The pandemic shrunk her walk-in business and her bread and butter, parties, especially holiday parties. This year, because of the COVID, we couldn't book any banquets. So, you know, that was a big loss of income to us. She's concerned she'll see a similar loss on Easter and Mother's Day. Her outdoor seating options aren't great. The patio is small and the weather is unpredictable. And Garlis doesn't deliver, except to a few elderly couples who were regulars before COVID. They can't get out right now. I don't want to get out right now, so um, we do deliver to them. She says that's one of the gifts of serving a small rural community. You do get to be personal with your people, which means 
keeping them coming back. As for Garlis's employees, she hasn't had to let anyone go, but she's reduced their hours, which she says is hard. They're just like my kids. <laughs> I haven't known them since they were teenagers. And she's trying to come to terms with something else, no longer being the provider for her extended family. Say, for example, my brother ended up in the hospital, you know, because of his lungs or whatever. Today, I wouldn't have the money to help him because I've lost so much money last year. She says the drop in business hasn't been all COVID-related. Every year, it gets harder and harder for restaurants like myself to compete against the McDonald's and Dairy Queens because everybody is in such a fast pace, you know, they want everything now, 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 now. Then COVID came along and pushed her to the brink. Trying to get back to where we were when you've lost, what, thirty to $50,000 is, it's not an easy task. Well, not out here in the rural area. She decided to put the building on the market. I'm just ready to get out. I think this is a good time to get out. And I I think a lot of people that have been in business probably longer than myself have made the same decision. You know, when this happened, they closed their doors and they just decided they're not going to reopen. But she hasn't totally thrown in the towel yet. She's waiting for the right buyers. I mean, if these people that are looking at it don't purchase it, well, you know, I'll still be here. I'm not just going to close my doors and walk away unless I'm absolutely positively forced to. She did get a small business grant from Morgan County, which has kept her head above water. I probably wouldn't be here today without it. And she's been frugal with what she has. I'm smart about money. I'm not so smart that I'm a millionaire, but I'm smart enough that I can, you know, I can work on a very low low budget and make it work. But she can imagine a point of no return. I mean, if it looked like I was happen to start using credit cards or whatever to stay alive, then that would be the end of it. In the meantime, Garlis is taking it day by day, one Greek salad at a time. Ali Budner, CPR News. Olga Archuleta liked to fish and liked to go to church, but mainly she liked to sing. She loved her children and animals and her late husband. In December, she died of COVID-19 in a Grand Junction nursing home. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, spoke with Olga's daughter about her mother's life. The thing about my mom, she encouraged everyone to be themselves. She never tied her identity into being a wife, and I think that was pretty unusual at that time and age. But Ona Ridgway jokes about not being quite sure of her mom's age. Olga Archuleta sometimes said she was born in 1928, sometimes said she was a year younger. So we just kind of laugh about it. Her mother spent the last eight years of her life living nearby Ona in Mesa County before a COVID-19 outbreak hit her nursing home. Initially, Ona thought her mom would make it through. She was a resilient woman. Born in Pueblo, raised in Trinidad, married right out of high school. As a young woman, Olga moved to Detroit, where that first marriage fell apart. She had my brother Bill in her arms, and she was pregnant with my brother Patrick. And she found where her husband was living and knocked on the door, and he was living with another woman at that time. So I think she realized that that was over. Olga picked herself up and fell in love with a man who doted on her, Richard Archuleta. Archie, everyone called him. And so she moved back to Colorado, uh, married my dad, and he had a son from a previous marriage. She had her two boys. 
And then together they had three more children, and one of them was me. Ona was the baby. They all grew up in Pueblo. Recently, Ona asked her siblings for stories about their mom. Her brother Don remembers coming home drunk as a teenager for the first time. My dad was really upset, and she went downstairs to check on him, and she told my dad, it's just the flu. (laughs) He's not drunk. So probably saved Don's skin at that time. (laughs) But she, she was very nurturing, very protective. And in her way, very modern. I remember as a teenager, she would talk to me about birth control. She was just very open-minded for that generation. When Ona's sister Chope came out as a transgender woman, Ona says her mom didn't want to believe it at first. But then her parents consulted a priest. And the priest told them, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, this is your child. And people will talk, and people will say things, but they'll soon forget as well. So love your child the way God loves his children. So I I think that was the turning point for them. Ona also has a transgender daughter who came out to her at 17. How I have chosen to parent this child is how I feel that my mother would have chosen to parent my sibling at a younger age. Ona says her mother instilled in her a need to care for others. Ona's a nurse, and two of her siblings also went into health care. She knows how serious COVID-19 is. So when her mother got sick, Ona was surprised she was able to visit, even in full PPE. But I, I'm grateful that I got to, to touch her and hug her and tell her in person that I love her. Two days later, in bed with oxygen tubes in her nose, Olga wanted to send Ona a message. She got her grandson, Ona's son, who actually works at the facility, to record her with his phone. I love you. Ona visited her mom two more times, but she faded quickly. She died early in the morning, a few days later. She'll be a role model um, for the rest of my life and hopefully a role model for my children. You know, I'm just glad that I got to be her daughter. Ona Ridgway, remembering her mother, Olga Archuleta, who died December 2nd. Ona spoke with CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg as the pandemic nears one year in Colorado. Find this and other profiles of people touched by COVID-19 at CPR.org. When Kwame Spearman was growing up in Denver, he loved visiting the Human Bookstore in Five Points because the characters in the books on the shelves there looked like him. Before it closed in 2000, Human was the only Black-owned bookstore in Denver. The owner, Clara Villarosa, was on a mission to provide diverse literature to the community. She went on to open a Human in New York City as well. Now, Spearman owns the tattered cover— and he's teaming up with Via Rosa to bring the human experience back to Denver. And welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Kwame, tell us more about what it meant to visit human when you were a boy. 
You know, I remember vividly going every December and getting black Santa holiday cards. And we would send them out to all of our friends and family. And it was something we were known for. And in addition, my mom would always get me an early Christmas present. She'd allow me to pick, and it would be a book mostly focused on Black history. You know, I she pulled out recently a book on the Negro Leagues, Only the Ball Was White, that I read, I think, when I was 11. It was just a, it was a really magical experience to go into a bookstore that just celebrated and, and, and cherished Black culture, Black history, and the Black identity. Say just a few more words about what it meant to see cards that had a Black Santa on them. Well, it definitely challenged the narrative at at the time. You know, I I think I I was really fortunate. I I had parents who, from my birth, told me I could do anything. They didn't say your race was going to affect you in any way, shape, or form. But I was in many ways unique. And I think for so many underrepresented people in this country for so long, it's that symbolism. It's the ability to look at someone who has done amazing things, who looks like you, and to know that you can do that. And to see a Black Santa holiday card, to read about Black intellectuals, W.B. Du Bois, and to understand that this has been happening in this country for so long, it gave me sort of the courage and, quite frankly, the understanding that I could do similar amazing things. And when you look at sort of the significance of, of owning the tattered cover, it's the same phenomenon. I want people in Denver, regardless of their race, their socioeconomic background, to know that they can own an institution like the Tattered Cover. Hmm. Clara, this new partnership primarily means you'll recommend books for the Tattered to feature. What do you hope to achieve with this? Well, when in Denver, I reached a particular audience. Now, what I'm thinking, I'll broaden the audience. It never would have occurred to me that this would happen. Now that it has happened, it makes my heart sing to know that the human, the human experience will continue, will broaden and continue to grow. At my age, Sometimes you lose, oh, you reach the back half. Well, I want to reach the back half, and I want to be able to thrive, and I want to be able to touch so many young people. Let them see that you appear in a book. It's like the little boy that came up to his mother, and he was so excited, and he said to her, Mother, look, look. And she said, yes, yes. He looks like me. He was included. He was recognized. He mattered. That's what I want to do. That's what I you want, want to do. I want to see that sparkle in the little eye. Uh, Clara, you sold Human in 2000 after a 16-year run. Uh, why was it hard to keep the business open then? Well, they changed the way people access information, and they changed the way people bought books. You didn't go into the store. You didn't have to. And so it appeared that we were obsolete. 
But no, we, we really weren't because people still wanted to go into the store to touch and feel the books and also have the opportunity to see these underrepresented artists, whether they're authors or paintings. And so this became a renaissance in some ways. And I'm so pleased to be a part of this. You see the current chapter, the partnership with the tattered cover as the renaissance. And I would love to have you give us a title or two that you'd like to feature as part of the human experience at the tattered. What's a book that you know will be on the shelves? Well, one, it's The Yellow House. It's fiction. And the distinctive part about The Yellow House is the house talks. The house talks about the inhabitants. You hear the voice of the house, not just the people who lived in it. And it's from the house's perspective. It, and that really touched me because I hadn't heard that voice before. And I, it resonated with me. Is this the book by Sarah Broom? Yes, it is. Yeah. How about one more title? Well, it's not one title. It's a person. It's Ivan Van Sertima. It's an old... It, it, he's not here now, but his writing lives on through his family, his, his daughters. And it's ancient African history because we don't hear that much about that. But that information is available to us and to have a place where people can come and access this is extremely important because it will show it will never die. It will live on because Ivan, there's a place for it. Ivan Van Sertima, uh, Guyanese-born British associate professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Kwame, uh, yes. are you familiar with these these writers and these titles? I am, and and what's so crazy is I wasn't before, and and, and that's the power of what Clara and Human are hoping to bring to the metro area is this deep understanding and the ability to recommend and to curate. So if you're looking for a particular title or a particular genre, that's where human can be so helpful. Aren't you facing, though, the same economic forces that Clara faced those many years ago, where books are now available with the click of a button? One, 100%. And, you know, to be honest, the, the economic troubles that Tattered Cover had in the past is, is partially why they have new owners. But there are a few big things that we've got going for us. The first is we will continue to support our community. And we simply ask that our community supports us. Human is one of many initiatives that you're going to see Tattered Cover go deep on to show that we are Colorado. The second is, you know, 
what's clever about the human experience is it actually allows us to start thinking about a service product for the tattered cover in which we can use our curation ability to recommend titles to large buyers like Denver Public Schools or large corporations who are both based in Colorado, but quite frankly, all across the country. And it's that type of diversification that is where bookstores have to go if they're going to survive. And we're confident not only can we survive, but we can create a model in which independent bookstores all across the country can can run towards in this sort of new evolving landscape. I think what I hear you saying is that if bookstores are to survive, they actually have to leave the confines of the bookstore. Do, Do you think that's true? 100%. And and I think that was what we realized in 2020 is that you can't just be inside. You need to go out into the community. You need to be a leader that erects change and you need to be a force of good. And if you can do that, there are opportunities to derive revenue for the tattered cover. Once again, our ability to curate, our ability to recommend books to people, we can do that at a more scalable basis while maintaining our own identity. Clara, I'm curious what you thought of last summer's controversy involving the tattered. There was outrage when the previous owners released a statement about the Black Lives Matter protests, saying that it was not the business's policy to take a stance in political moments. What what did you make of that? Well, I, for one, it's past. And what I see ahead of us I understand. I know Joyce. I know Joyce 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 Maskis, the founder of the Tattered Cover. Yes, because she helped me start the human. I didn't know anything about the business, and I called her, and she and I sat and talked, and she told me about the business. So, and now I have met Kwame. So these are the ones that I know. These are the ones that I have faith in. And I put my trust and say, let's just do this. Just for clarity's sake, Keep Joyce Meskis was not the owner that I was talking about uh, in regards no. to that but, statement. But, she was a a previous, previous uh, owner, the founder right. of the Tattered Cover. And my sense is that, uh, was Joyce imparted the idea of making sure that a bookstore was part of political movement. Was part of the community. And that's, that's how she started. Now, it, it may, may transfer to other owners. There may be other iterations. But that's how it started. Well, and that's how I see it, it going back to. A return. And, and as you said, a renaissance. That's all the time we have. I, I thank you both for shedding some light on this partnership. Kwame, thank you. Ryan, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Claire, thank you so much. Thank you. Kwame yes. Spearman, co-owner of The Tattered Cover, and 91-year-old Clara Villarosa, founder of The Human Experience. They're collaborating to showcase more diverse literature to Metro Denver. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour as a Sand Creek Massacre Memorial at the state capitol moves closer to reality. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News and KRCC.
Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. And you listen. Really blown away by Back From Broken. Back From Broken inspired to... me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers are a step closer to deciding where to place a Sand Creek Massacre Memorial. Members of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and descendants of survivors testified before the Capitol Development Committee Thursday. They urged legislators to put the memorial outside the state capitol, replacing the statue of a Civil War soldier that was toppled during last year's protests. We're looking for healing. We want to feel pride again. We want to see something respectful and something with dignity that gives our people dignity. That is Otto Braided Hair, a northern Cheyenne tribal member and descendant of a Sand Creek survivor. The massacre happened in November 1864. More than 200 Arapaho and Cheyenne people, mostly women, children, and the elderly, were murdered in an ambush by U.S. soldiers. Our old people at Sand Creek were attacked because they were supposedly savage and uncivilized. And so who was really the uncivilized people? at Sand Creek. We have a very strong spirituality way of life. That's why we're still here. But we do want that spot out there on the West Lawn for our memorial. And it should memorialize the nations and the history of Colorado, Colorado Territory, not just the state. Catherine Redhorse, who is Lakota and Navajo, leads the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. She also testified. The Sand Creek Massacre is one of the darkest moments in our state's history. Only by acknowledging and learning from this tragic event can we collectively move forward. Only then can we heal. Well, the artist selected to create the memorial is Harvey Pratt. He is also a descendant of Sand Creek survivors. And we spoke in November. Harvey, welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much. You had already created a small prototype. I know that it's evolving, as art often does, but uh, what does it depict? It's of a young woman, a young woman that's uh, on her knees, and uh, she has a left arm thrust up into the air, and she's holding a uh, empty cradle board. And uh, it, it really is about the women that suffered there. And when uh, Cheyenne women or men uh, mourned, they cut their hair, and uh, in the old days, they used to either cut a finger off and then they would cut their legs or their arms. And that's what this statue depicts, this woman holding an empty cradle board, implying that she has lost her child and she has cut her little finger off at the second joint on her left hand. And she's cut her hair, cut her braids off. Did you design this to be arresting? Did you design this to stop people in their tracks? Uh, because I'll say that when I saw the piece, that's that's what it did for me. It, it took my breath away. Well, I wanted it to portray uh, that this woman was uh, suffering and she's in mourning. And you can you can take it either as a survivor or a victim. 
Mm. You know, I leave that up to the to the person that's looking at it. But I wanted to, I wanted to show that uh, the suffering that she's going through, having having lost her child and possibly her husband or her father or her grandfather and grandmother. And a long time ago, I was told that as people were fleeing, uh, those that were left behind were telling them, "Remember us! Don't forget us! Remember us!" And so I, uh, I Cheyenne and Rappo people always always remember Sand Creek. And I think that uh, I wanted people to see her asking for help. Right, pleading with them to remember her, not to forget her. How did this idea of a grieving mother come to you? A lot of my artwork comes through a a concept of something that happened or or someone that lived. And I've always heard about Sand Creek as a little boy. I've always heard that uh, my family, I was raised by people that were born in the 1870s and 1880s. And so they always... They always had a, a lot of old stories, and they talked about Sand Creek, and they, uh, this woman is barefoot, and uh, a lot of the victims got up and ran barefoot, and I was always told, you keep your shoes right here by the bed, so you might have to get up and run. So I've, I've always, uh, I have that, do that now, you know, I keep my shoes right by the bed. You keep your shoes by the bed still. This was something you were told as a boy, just in case you have to flee. Yes. You're a Southern Cheyenne. What do you know about what happened to your, I believe it's great-grandparents? My great-grandparents were survivors of Sand Creek. It was Julia Bent. Julia was the daughter of William Bent from Bent's Fort. Mm. And my uh, great-grandfather was Edmund, Edmund Guerrier, G-U-E-R-R-I-E-R. And he was a half French and half Cheyenne, as was uh, Julia was uh, English and, and uh, Cheyenne. And they eventually moved to Oklahoma and had their lands in a little town called Gary. And Gary was named after uh, my great-grandfather, Edmund Garrier. Harvey, I just want to note that this statue might replace the monument of the Civil War soldier, which was toppled this past summer during demonstrations, carted away by the city. How do you feel about all that? Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm opposed to, to people taking taking those matters into their own hands and, dis- and the destruction of art. As an artist, those things are, to me, are pieces of art. And what they, what they imply, uh, if, if people, there's better ways, to, in my opinion, to do that than physically tear and destruct things. I mean, let's take it to court and do it that way and have it done without having someone taking something down and t- destroying it or because they don't agree with you. Hmm. Harvey, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Artist Harvey Pratt speaking with us in November about the Sand Creek Massacre Memorial he created. The Capitol Development Committee heard testimony Thursday and will soon decide where to place the monument, which is already approved. By the way, Pratt was also commissioned by the Smithsonian to do the National Native American Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Since our last visit from astronomer Doug Duncan, I've been waiting with bated breath, waiting to hear for the first time the sound of the Martian wind. Duncan told us earlier this month that the Perseverance rover has a microphone on board. I think we'll hear the, these winds, dust storms perhaps, blowing dust. Um, I doubt if we'll hear birds. 
Um, but I'm sure we're going to hear the sounds of perseverance driving around and, and what the, the wheels crunch and, and roll over and the sound of drilling into, into the rocks and, and maybe some surprises because we've never had the sounds of Mars. Well, now we have them, some of them at least, from 134,166,529 miles away we present the sound of wind on Mars, courtesy of NASA. NASA had to process that sound just a bit to remove the hum of the rover and isolate the wind. The latest U.S. mission to Mars is supported by a slew of Colorado aerospace contractors, by the way. It's impossible to know exactly how many bands have gone silent because of the pandemic. Rehearsals, studio sessions, and concerts canceled in the past year. But Denver indie rock band South of France is persevering, even releasing a new album with a track that was featured in the animated series Bojack Horseman. South of France is a solo project now from singer and multi-instrumentalist Jeff Cormack. The new album, recorded in his home, is called Remember That Cool Thing We Did. And Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. This album's been a long time coming. It arrives nearly a decade after South of France's debut. I'm curious if it was the pandemic that pressed you to return to this project and finish it. I think it was just serendipitous timing all around and sort of a culmination of hard work and then coming up with a collection of songs that I really like. A collection of songs you really liked. Does that mean you got rid of a lot of songs you didn't? I got rid of probably three to four albums worth of material to sort of arrive at these, I guess. <laughs> huh. Is that just part of the creative process, do you think? Do you, do you accept that that's a fundamental fact? I think so. You know, for me, being a songwriter and a producer, both of those things are fairly objective and straightforward. And I spent years and years, you know, becoming a better songwriter, a better producer. But being an artist is really hard. It's really tricky to absorb everything that's going on in the universe, we'll call it. And then uh, put your take on it and put it out there. And I think for me, that just took a really long time. Are you a perfectionist? Sort of. I'm extremely particular. As long as I land in the right ballpark with things, I'm sort of a perfectionist and meticulous about that. But once I'm in the right ballpark, it's like, whatever flies. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that cool thing we did. As I said, is the name of this record. Uh, tell me about that title. Are you feeling nostalgic? Yeah, it is. The whole vibe is just this nostalgic look 
at, I don't know, youth, some of the ridiculous things that were normal and in my childhood and younger years. Oh, give me an example. Oh, just the video games we used to play and the movies we used to watch. It's really funny. When I was sort of gathering imagery for this album, my like 90s upbringing of Catholic suburban school and video games and the culture that I was absorbing at that time kicked in. And that's more or less what the imagery is Hmm. for this collection. Does a particular film come to mind? Any of the Wes Anderson or Sofia Coppola films, they kind of have that blasé vibe of making very normal teenage suburban life seem interesting. (laughs) Jeff Cormack, uh, South of France started as a more conventional band. You were accompanied by other musicians. Uh, Now, in 2021, South of France is just you playing all the instruments in your studio. Guitar, drums, keyboards, bass... What pushed you to the solo approach? You know, originally when I started, I had done the first album totally on my own. I sort of had the revelation of like, oh man, I don't know if I really want to do this 100% on my own. Obviously, I can't play 100% on my own. So I started inviting people to join in and play live, which has been awesome. I've played with so many great people. But I've always had a hard time with this project, collaborating on the writing Mm -hmm. and the production. And I think that's part of it. I kept trying and trying to do that. And then even in my own head, I'd ask people for advice. What do you think of this? Like, if we play this live, are you going to feel good about playing it? And I think that's what took so long to finish the album is I just started asking for other people's opinions. And uh, that's a terrible, terrible thing to do in music. (laughs) (laughs) Too many cooks in the kitchen. You had to clear the kitchen out a bit to make space. Yes. Yes. And this is Sidewalk by Denver band South of France, whose new album is Remember That Cool Thing We Did. And and this song has such an expansive sound. Will you just talk a little bit about it? Oh, yeah, thank you. That's what I really like about it. It's funny, I'm pretty meticulous about my lyrics and that song. When I started working on the track and putting melody and lyric ideas together, I I was like, lyrically, like, you don't need to think about anything. It's Hmm. just a fun a fun one, and sort of get lost in the vibe. When you let go that way of expectations around the lyrics, I wonder if lyrically magic actually happens. I think so. I think that happens in songwriting in general. When you get out of your own way, get out of your own head, and stop really thinking like, oh, is this going to be cool? Or what are people going to think of this? I feel like that's you know the best thing you can do. What did you come up with lyrically in Sidewalk that you like? Give me a phrase or two. I really like the sort of pre-chorus dropout. You know, you've got some kind of life, girl. Something ain't right. You got some kind of life, girl.
it's like, well, how, how are you doing it so well? You got it figured out, and that's not right. Nobody I know has it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> this album also features songs you recorded on an old tape machine in quarantine. Uh, and it's a bit more of a raw sound for South of France. How did those end up on the record? Those are so fun. Those those actually have become my favorite collection of songs. I ended up doing 10 or 12 of those, and I'm going to try and kind of release and sprinkle throughout future releases too. But they're really fun. It was quarantine, and I have a daughter, and she was seven months old at the time. And so we were trapped in the house more or less for a month there in April. It kind of became a family activity. Everything was recorded really sloppily. She'd be in the room with her little headphones on and she'd scream in the middle of a take. You know, I'd leave it in, I'd love it. It was awesome. What's your home studio setup like? Do you, do you like it? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I love it because I don't have a ton of stuff, but I've got it where it counts. And I think that's a culmination of 10 years of trying different things out, different mics, different preamps, the whole ordeal. And I, I sort of have this bare bones system now that works really, really well. And I have it set up so I'm able to really flow through quickly. Like if I have an idea that I hear in my head and I want to lay down, I'm finally at the point with all my gear where I know exactly how to get that sound, which is fun. I feel like that's half the battle in music. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems to me if you can reduce the time of idea to execution of that idea, you just risk losing or forgetting it less, you know? Absolutely. In the old days, I would voice memo all that stuff out. Uh Uh-huh. To get it done quickly, it's a problem. I get lazy and I let the voicemail sit too long. And then I'm making trumpet sounds or something with my mouth on the voice memo. And I'm like, <laughs> what What? What? What was I thinking there? Like, what, what instrument am I supposed to use? So it's nice to just kind of capture the real thing when I need it. <laughs> you often produce and write songs for other artists. And I wonder, Jeff Cormack, does it ever feel like giving away your children? Yes. Sometimes it's tricky, but I've gotten, I've gotten really good at it. I think I kind of know from the first line in a song, if it's going to be for me or somebody else. And which is nice because I can compartmentalize things when I'm writing for other people. That's when I tend to write really strong songs because I'm not in my own way. Like I'm not worried. Oh, people are going to think this is coming from him. It's his art. It's his perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's easier to just write a little story and then pass it off. Do you ever regret having given away a song? (laughs) There are a few, there are a few hooks that I've given out Mm -hmm. that it's interesting when I'm writing songs. Now they'll come back to me and I'm like, I should have hung on to that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, there won't be a South of France tour to promote the new record, given pandemic circumstances. So how will you, you know, do what you would otherwise do virtually? Or how do you keep busy with music in the coming weeks and months? Well, I think that's been the question that's been on everyone's mind for the last year or so. Trying to figure out a way to promote the music. It's really tricky, but I think myself, like everybody else, has sort of accepted the reality of the situation. And for me, it's kind of cool. I'm really excited about continuing to write and maybe work on another album. I mean, I feel like I'm almost two thirds done with another album already. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's been nice. I mean, it is a bummer to not be able to get out there and, and really play it and promote it that way. But, you know, hopefully in the future, play catch up and promote it after the fact. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks so much for being with us, Jeff. Congrats on the new album. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Jeff Cormack of South of France, the Denver band's sophomore album, Remember That Cool Thing We Did, is out today. Daniel Mesher produced that segment. Finally today, we say farewell to a member of our team. No matter what the assignment was, Exandra McMahon brought energy, intelligence, and creativity. She produced, reported, and hosted, most recently, a show about Colorado then and now to coincide with CPR's 50th anniversary. Enjoy this medley of some of Exandra's greatest hits. All right, I just have one last piece of audio from this treasure hunt. Okay. Tell me, Ryan, when you joined the show, was the Colorado Matters theme song still this spy thrillery? Yes. You know what I was thinking? Maybe this could be my theme song every time I'm on the show from now on. Okay, we just play the old CM Noir theme. Well, we're actually going to give Ryan some much-needed time off, and uh, I'm going to captain this ship for the rest of the hour. So bye, Ryan. Bye, Xandra McMahon. The bus is run by My420 Tours, and this company calls themselves leaders in cannabis tourism. Welcome to the party bus. If you couldn't tell, uh, you guys can smoke on here. Everyone apparently came prepared because in about five minutes that bus was filled with smoke. I find the main entrance to the Black Monarch Hotel, and it's just a plain black door. I walk inside and enter a pitch black hallway. Like, can't see your hand in front of your face so dark. So I get out my flashlight, hoping I can find a door or stairs to the main lobby, something. I do find some stairs, and as I'm walking up them, I kid you not, the theme music to The Shining starts playing. The one guy who was tasked with measuring this basement... A little bag of chips flew by, a little trash ghost Uh, there. Yep, Yep, a chip bag brushing against my foot is the closest I got to a supernatural experience.
It was always an event because we lived on the north side of town in Briargate. So it was a bit of a drive to come downtown and get El Taco Ray, but it was always so worth it. Alexandra, I have to share this burrito with you. You're the one who turned me on to it. I know. I'm so excited for you to try it. This is a massive burrito, and it's swimming in green chili. And the green chili is not super spicy, but the heat kind of hits you in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss this. And that red rice, yum. Oh, the rice is so good. On the fourth level of the parking garage at the Denver Performing Arts Complex, the cast and crew of Nervamlet warms up. Three, two, one. Welcome to the show, rockers, roadies, and groupies. Please keep your bodies active, tongue stretched out of your mouth, and devil horns to the sky. It's sort of a mixture of concert meets the story of Hamlet in a kind of crazy way. But Nirvana fans, rest assured, there's plenty of this in the show. I'm Dave Stidman, co-owner of Wax Tracks Records. Been doing this for 40 years. I'm Dwayne Davis, co-owner of Wax Tracks, and uh, yeah, 40 years. Dave and Dwayne are sitting in a very dark, cramped basement. The space is filled with boxes of overstock that they don't have room for upstairs. Dave mentions that in the early days, he used to live in the back room of the basement. That was, of course, after he and Dwayne decided to make a big career change. Dwayne and I used to work together at Jefferson County Social Services. And Dave and I had both had a couple of beers. Dave says, hey, let's get a record store. I said, well, open another beer and let's do it. <laughs> you know? A taste of what producer Alexandra McMahon brought to CPR listeners over the years. She's moving on to help launch CityCast in Denver, a daily news podcast that'll connect people with the city they love. Best of luck, X. And thanks to Michael Hughes for helping assemble that montage. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I want to